0: You've probably heard about the tendency of certain criminals to return to the scene of their crimes. Arsonists in particular have been found to hang around and watch their work. One study showed that 28% never leave the scene. Of those who did leave, 59% then came back. Some immediately, some about a half hour later, some the next day. It just goes to show you if you're hanging around watching a building burn down, they're probably going to think you're an arsonist. So I'm just, that's just a public service announcement for you, my dear friends. So Now, we know that Paul was no arsonist, but he had started a fire in the Galatian region. He was no criminal, but he had certainly been treated like one city after city. After a long trip across the sea, over an island, through the Galatian territory, being led by the Holy Spirit, he realizes the mission is coming to a close. But then something remarkable happens. He and Barnabas turn around and head back through the very places where they had barely escaped with their lives, to Antioch of Pisidia, where they had been run out of town Uh, by leading citizens and even the officials there to Iconium where there had been a plot to murder them and they had to run for it to Lystra where Paul actually was murdered stoned to death there was no long interval of years in between these visits just a few weeks maybe or maybe a month or two but here we see how the power of God and the leading of God can equip a Christian to walk in great courage God's power is one that drives out fear even in the most deadly of circumstances. Something else is worth noting here. Bible commentator, E.Vor Powell, prods us to look at that map that most of us have in the back of your Bibles. If you have a analog Bible, you probably have maps in the back and you might not peruse them very often. But if you have one, take a look and look at the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. And here's what you're gonna notice. Look at his first trip. And notice the road not taken. When our text opens, Paul is in Derby, and you can see it there on the map. Look a little bit to the east, just a short trip to the east. What do you see? You'll see Tarsus, Paul's town, probably full of family and friends. Look just a little bit east of that, and you'll see Antioch of Syria, Paul's new home, full of his family and the faith, the place that they're headed back toward. But now take a look at what Paul and Barnabas did. Took, look at their trip home. Talk about taking the long way. He goes back mostly the way he came so that he could fan the flame of faith that he helped kindle in all of those cities that he was treated so harshly in. We might say he wasn't just going to fan the flame, but to tend the little saplings that had been planted there. We talk about church planting. That's a phrase that we hear a lot in Christianity. Your Bible may even have that as a heading over these verses tonight. Some tender, vulnerable young churches had been started through Paul's ministry, and he felt compelled to go and cultivate them and strengthen them and help them in their infancy. Those of you who garden know how much care and attention and effort it takes to properly develop just a little plant, not to mention human lives. It takes time. Time was certainly not something Paul had a lot of on this particular trip. Good gardening also requires light and soil and some other supplies, things that will help out. Paul was also disadvantaged in this area. Not only were most of these believers living among very hostile opponents to the gospel, some bad soil in that sense, they also had no written New Testament. Some of them way out here in the edges of the, you know, pagan world probably didn't even have the written Old Testament to work with. These were churches filled with brand new baby Christians who are now tasked with becoming the body of Christ and taking up the Great Commission themselves for them to follow after the Lord as Paul was following after the Lord. What do you do in a situation like that? And then secondly, when you've been called to a specific ministry and you've dedicated your life to it, made great sacrifices for it, but then it comes to an end, well, what then? These are questions that churches and Christians still face today. And there's some answers on display for us in the text tonight. We begin in verse 21. After they had preached the gospel in that town, Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. Dr. Luke doesn't give us much detail in reporting on this part of the trip. Obviously, he is being very efficient with his words. But we know it was an effective time. We're told that they made many disciples in Derby. It doesn't seem like, or at least it's not reported for us, that there was a lot of violent opposition or anything like that. We also know, piecing things together, that a man named Gaius was converted there. He would later become a traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, We are more apt to remember Timothy and Titus, and that's fine. They had a prominent relationship with Paul. Uh, There's also this guy Gaius he would suffer persecution in Ephesus. We'll see that in a few chapters. But he would also be with Paul when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And Paul says he acted as a host, not only to the apostle, but to the whole church, he said. And so a neat guy. We note that the verse there says they preached and they made disciples. And uh, it's interesting to just kind of think about that. The object of each of those activities, they're not really separate activities necessarily, but there's some sort of difference in between those two activities in one sense. Now, the object of each of them is the same, to tell people about Jesus Christ and for them to believe and follow after Jesus Christ with their lives. And preaching is required first so that people might begin the life of discipleship. But it's a good thing for us to remember that our responsibility as Christians is to go and make disciples, it's kind of an interesting distinction. The, the message is not just go and preach the gospel. If, if it was just go and preach the gospel, um, you know, if there was nothing for us to do beyond the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, then most Christians in this day and age could retire until the rapture, right? because now we have radio and television and cheap printing and internet and all these other things the gospel is being proclaimed in a general sense 24 hours a day all around the world right but the the assignment is to go and make disciples and preaching has to it can't be done without preaching it, not at all preaching of the gospel must always be primary and it always must be persistent but in addition to preaching the good news of Jesus Christ about him dying on the cross and rising from the dead and can save someone from their sins, we also then keep proclaiming God's word, the rest of God's revelation, showing one another how to apply God's word to our lives. And discipleship means we walk in those things and that we join together to go out fishing for men and women who are still lost in sin. And so the way Paul made disciples was by establishing local churches. This was obviously the leading of the Holy Spirit, but we see him doing it on this trip. He would go to a place, and first he would preach the good news of Jesus Christ. He would explain to people that the Savior had arrived, and he would explain to people that they very much needed a Savior. And then he would say, here is how you receive salvation. And then when people became Christians, when people were born again, he established churches and and he would form a local gathering, a local congregation, a group of people deeply connected by the love of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And together that local group would grow and develop and continue the transforming work of Christ in their city even after Paul left. Now what Paul didn't do was pick a city, go into that city, open up a building and say, the church is now here, right? He didn't hang out a shingle and say, come to, you know, Calvary Chapel of Derby. He went and preached the gospel. And when Christians were made there, when people converted and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then he formed a local church. Now, as we've seen, usually not long after Paul organized a church in a town, he'd get kicked out by unbelievers one way or another. But now here we see he's deciding to go back. Now, human reasoning would call this irresponsible. Human reasoning would say, you can't go back to these places. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad for you. It could be bad for the believers there. It's pretty dangerous. Don't do that. Human reasoning would just say, just take the jog over to Antioch. Get back home. That's where you're headed. They'll be okay. But Paul saw it as necessary because the Spirit saw it as necessary. And what this shows us is that sometimes when we are doing God's work, we're going to have to ignore danger as a factor. If Paul would have factored in danger into this equation, he would have headed east to Tarsus, not west to Lystra. But this wasn't a man who was led by human reasoning. He was led by the Holy Spirit. And he was compelled by the love that he had in his heart for people in need. Apostle Paul, remarkable man, of course, But one of his most wonderful traits is how much he loved people. He loved strangers. He loved his enemies. He loved his countrymen, the Jews. He just loved people. And he was not only desperate to get them out of their captivity to sin and into the kingdom of God, but he was also uh, really, really focused on helping people develop as Christians, helping them progress as disciples. He didn't want to just blow into a town, you know, speak out his program, speak out his one sermon, and then say, okay, I've preached and now I'm going. Right? He said, I wanna make disciples. I wanna keep preaching the word of God. I wanna keep preaching to not just unbelievers in this town, but preaching to believers and teaching them how to preach to themselves and teaching them how to preach to others and teaching them how to grow in the Lord and how to participate in that work that the Lord had begun with them. And so he had a real heart for people. He was compelled by the love for people so much so that he could say things like, I wish that I could be accursed and sent to hell instead of my Jewish brethren. Or the kind of love where he says, hey, those people who murdered me a couple of weeks ago, I wanna go back and talk to them. I wanna go back and make sure the other Christians there are safe. And someone probably around him said, don't you think they might murder you again? I guess, but we gotta go back. We gotta go back. You got to think that a reasonable arsonist thinks I'm probably going to get arrested if I go back to the scene of the crime but they are compelled to go back a very different compulsion of course but you know like the, the the apostle paul was so compelled by his love that he had in his heart for people people in need, in need of salvation, in need of development, in need of teaching, those sorts of things. And so I'd encourage us as individuals and as a local church to just always be praying for God to give us an expanding love, not only for people in general, but a burden for some specific people that he would use us to minister to. Verse 22 says, he went strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Interesting way of encouraging people, Paul. Uh, what does Barnabas have to say? He's the son of encouragement. We're used to a more syrupy form of encouragement. If you're feeling low, or if things are kind of stacked against you and you're looking for a pick-me-up, we're used to a different uh, flavor of encouragement, right? In the Lego movie, great movie, when the dad, played by Will Ferrell, realizes that the villain is in the boy's imagination, is patterned after him, he's hurt and he's demoralized. And so he asks his son, okay, well, what would the good guy say to encourage and help the bad guy not be bad anymore? He needed some encouragement. He needed to be, you know, remoralized, right? And uh, here's the, what the speech goes. Emmett, the little Lego guy, here's the, here's the speech that he gives. You are the most talented, the most interesting, and the most extraordinary person in the universe, and you are capable of amazing things because you are the special. Hey, that makes you feel good, right? I'm gonna get some Legos and build something, right? That makes you feel really good. Not Paul. Paul is not gonna give you a you're the special. Uh, This is the guy who says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, everybody. But what he says here to these fledgling believers is this. It's necessary for you to, enter, to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Wow, okay. Now listen, he didn't say that because he was jaded or because he had been dealt a particularly rough set of cards in ministry, right? He, from the beginning, what did the Lord tell him? He says, <laughs> he told Ananias, go tell Paul how many things he's gonna have to suffer for my name, Well, maybe Paul just sort of had a suffering chip on his shoulder, or maybe Paul could only see things from this perspective, but that's not the case at all. This is the Holy Spirit talking through uh, Paul, and it wasn't just Paul's message. I mean, this is the message of the New Testament. This is the message of Jesus, that in the world, you, you are going to have trouble, and that's part and parcel of a life of faith. Uh, Paul said this because it's true. It was true for them, it's true for us, But why is it that we must go through many hardships or pass through many troubles on our way to our glorious future in heaven? There are quite a few reasons given in the New Testament, lots of discussion on it by scholars and theologians and apologists, of course. But fundamentally, we remember that we live out this life in a fallen world. And this fallen world, we're told, is ruled by the enemy of God, where he's called the God of this world. And the God of this world, the devil, wants to extinguish the light of Christ, and you are the light of Christ, and he wants to extinguish your lamp, and he wants to put obstacles in your path. Well, then why doesn't God just exempt his people from suffering the way he did with some of the plagues in Egypt? Oh, we got you, God. You can't make me suffer. You didn't make the Israelites suffer all the plagues in Egypt. Remember that the land of Goshen was completely, miraculously exempt from some of those plagues, like the plague of darkness. The whole nation of Egypt is in complete darkness, darkness that could be felt. But in Goshen, there was light. So what's the deal? Why, aren't I, why, aren't, why am I not a beneficiary of that kind of miraculous protection, that supernatural shield blocking any ill effects? Well, God's word explains that suffering, though not caused by God, is a reality and is useful in our development and our sanctification. Here's a few things that suffering can do, and this is by no means a conclusive and the end all. I mean, if you want to talk about the topic of suffering, we talk about suffering a lot here at Calvary Hanford, um, but there's a lot of good information and discussion on, on, on suffering in the life of the Christian. But here's a few things that suffering can do. It can act as a refining work, purifying and strengthening us, like when gold or silver goes through a fire. It makes us more able to do greater spiritual work. It can be used to prepare us to help others who are going to suffer. It can be used to show God's might and his glory. It can be because we messed up and brought some suffering on ourselves through uh, poor decision or by not following in the will of God. Now, we understand that strain and pressure in, in, the, in, in, in this world, in this life, right? We understand that strain and pressure and hardship can lead to an accomplishment that couldn't have been achieved otherwise. Childbirth is one of those things, right? We understand that. You're not gonna beat the Mario Brothers without jumping all the hurdles and smashing all the Koopa Troopas. You're gonna have to dodge some fireballs. And guess what? You're gonna have to die a bunch of times too. (laughs) We're uh, playing the Mario Brothers on Wii with the kids sometimes. And like we've used it, every time you go through all your lives, unless you just keep, you know, recontinuing, but we're on like 80 continues, right? We're just like, yeah, continue, continue, continue because there's all of these obstacles and all of these difficulties. Here's a more serious example. If you wanna make a Marine, you can't just do so by walking up to a random person on the street and saying, you're a Marine now, right? That would be crazy. And if you put that person who you said, you're a Marine now, and you drop them into Afghanistan, you're gonna have a real mess on your hands, right? We all understand that. But you can take that same average person off of the street and put them through the rigor of training and the challenges of the crucible, right? And chances are, there's like an 89% pass rate, right? Chances are they're going to come out as something they weren't before. They went in, not a Marine, they came out a Marine. And now what are they able to do? Now they're able to accomplish some serious things on the battlefield. And so Paul explained to these believers that to operate as Christians behind enemy lines on our way home to heaven, they would need to be strengthened, they would need equipment, and they need to know what was coming down the road. Now, Paul gave them support to be able to continue living the Christian life and making progress in it. How? How do I make progress in the Christian life? He said, continue, continue in the faith. It's said quickly here in Luke's telling, but this idea and this this understanding is fleshed out more in passages by Paul, like Colossians 1, 23 and others. But in these passages, we learn that continuing in the faith means to believe the truth and to stand firmly in it, to keep believing what God's word says, to not drift away from your assurance and salvation, to not drift away from the teaching of scripture, to not grow weary in doing good, and to rely on the grace of God day by day. Those are some of the things that the New Testament talks about, how we continue in the Christian faith. You know, we talk about, and we even talked about it this last Sunday, but how God's mercies are new every morning, right? That beautiful image, that beautiful verse. And and so we see that God is doing this day by day, wonderful work, this wonderful provision, this, this gift that he gives to his people in particular ways day by day. But the flip side of that is our part, right? As each morning dawns, we rise to exercise our faith. Now, we have this faith that we are to continue in as we rely on the grace of God and trust in the Lord and believe him and apply his word and receive what he's giving to us and listen for his leading. And as we move as active disciples... That we're not just people who once heard a sermon one time, but that I'm a disciple. I'm walking in the will of God. I'm walking in the word of God. I'm bringing others with me. I'm filling up my life with all of those things that God has provided from heaven. Verse 23 says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. For individual Christians to grow and be discipled, they need a local church. It was true then, it's still true today. Paul believed in the local church. Not just a general idea that I individually am part of Christ's body universal. We are individually members of Christ's body universal, of course. But Paul, with what little time he had, did not write them a personal curriculum, right? One of the great things about the internet right now, you can can pick any topic you want to learn about, and you can probably learn a lot about it for free whether it's some sort of online course or whether it's just manuals online, whether it's YouTube, if you wanna to learn to code, if you wanna learn about engines, if you wanna learn a language, if you wanna learn all of these different things that before, well, I had to, go to, I had to go somewhere to a university, I had to go to a technical school, I had to go somewhere, it's all available, right? Paul, with what little time he had before people came to kill him, He didn't say, well, I wrote you a personal curriculum, and if you just follow through this, you're good. With what little time he had, he said, you know what we need to do? Gather up the Christians in this town and make them into a church, a local church. He knew that they needed a vibrant, organized, local congregation with leaders and responsibilities and a unified devotion to Jesus Christ. And we see that he and Barnabas took this organization process seriously. They prayed, they fasted, city after city. And we know as we composite things together, sometimes in other places when, when Paul was putting a church together, he would look and say, you know, there really isn't a, a person here. There isn't a man here who is ready to take on this bishop role. Timothy, you need to go over there and fill that spot. Or Titus, you need to stay here, or you need to do this. And so they took this really seriously. They were thoughtful, and they were prayerful, and they were... Um, careful about how they were organizing these churches, but it was essential to them. Having established an organized fellowship, we're told he committed them to the Lord. There's a sweetness embedded here. Another way to say it is that he turned them over to the care of the Lord. And what a tender care it is. Albert Barnes writes, they were feeble, inexperienced, exposed to dangers, but in the Lord's hands, they were safe. In the Lord's hands, we are safe doesn't mean we're not going to ever experience trouble. We're promised that we have to experience trouble. But in the Lord's hands, we are safe. Now, from Paul's perspective, there's also a loving affection in the words committed to the Lord. The term used, I'm told, is one that implies the confiding trust of one who commits what is very precious to him into the keeping of another. And so we just see Paul's loving, compassionate, tender heart for these people and how he saw them as a precious treasure and he was Putting that care into the hands of his Lord. The verse closes by saying that it was in Christ whom they had believed. Not a man, not a method, not a brand, not a slogan, not a style. The Lord Jesus was their object and focus, their friend, their shepherd. Very important. This scene also demonstrates that when Paul set up a church, it was meant to function in an independent, self sufficient, self governing way. Now, listen of course, there was brotherhood and a generalized unity among the churches. We've already seen that the church in Antioch, they heard that the believers in Judea needed help. And so immediately they said, yeah, those are our brothers, what can we do to help? It wasn't that they isolated themselves, but you know, the churches were localized. It was a local fellowship. And yeah, next up, we're gonna see the Jerusalem Council, which had implications for all believers everywhere. But as a congregation, they were localized. Paul didn't say, and you know what you do? Once a quarter, you check back with me and I tell you what to do from here on out. He would write epistles as a spiritual father to them to encourage them and help them. But he set this up and he says, okay, this is is your local church now. This is your local church. This is your unity together. This is your opportunity to serve the Lord and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and those sorts of things. And it makes perfect sense that congregations were localized. Because think about from what we've been learning. Compare Derby to Lystra or Antioch to Jerusalem. They're completely different places, completely different people, completely different circumstances in each of those locations. In some you have people who are murdering Christians and some you have people who aren't. So obviously, there are different things going on in different localities among different groups of people. All under the same Lord, all have the same ultimate goals and values, but the function, the operation, the emphasis, the forms are going to vary from place to place, just like your hand compared to your stomach. It's a unified body, but your hand and your stomach are pretty different. They do not serve the same function. They do not look the same way. They do not feel the same way. And that's good, because there's lots of different things we need our bodies to do. I'm glad glad that my stomach doesn't talk the way my hands talk when I'm up here. That would be weird and And off-putting. And so it makes perfect sense. Verse 24, they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. After they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Very little is reported here. I'm sure a lot happened We know that there had been some folks from Pamphylia at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2, but whether they had returned or not, we just can't say. Verse 26, from there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. On the trip back, Paul and Barnabas bypassed Cyprus. That was where they had started things off. They went through the whole island, we're told, and had some great success. The governor of the entire island became a Christian probably would have been a very habitable spot for them. Uh, But they bypass it. We don't know why. It's altogether possible that on this sea voyage from Italia to Antioch, they experienced one of the shipwrecks we know about in Paul's life. One is at the end of Acts, we'll get there, but there were at least three others. We don't know much about them. But now after around two years, we're finally back at home with their friends and their brothers in Antioch who had sent them out on this trip. We're reminded here that they had been commended to the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas had been commended to go. The believers in the Galatian churches were commended to stay. God has a lot of different kinds of work for his people in different places. We're not all supposed to be doing the exact same thing. We're not all supposed to be following the exact same program unless the program is honoring God and going and making disciples, right? One, these people were commended to stay. These people were commended to go. It was all good, all sorts of different work. And that is a wonderful thing. Either way, they were commended to the loving grace of God. Wait just a minute. I'm sorry. Think back about what we've been reading. Apparently, God's grace for Paul included beatings and running for his life and being killed. What? Again, what does Barnabas have to say? Can we get get some different messaging here? It's true. God's grace allowed those things in Paul's life because that was the job. That was the work he had been set apart for. That's probably not a job condition most of us want, but that was the job in this case. Years ago, the television show Dirty Jobs was a big hit. I'm sure you, like I, watched some of them. I remember watching it sometimes and just being horrified at some of the things that people had to do, but also simultaneously being so glad that someone was willing to do that. I remember this one in particular. It was some kind of sewage thing, and it was just, it was just horrifying. And there it are, teams of people who are like, yeah. I put on the coveralls, I put on the thing, I, I put it on. I go in there with my methane reader to make sure I'm not gonna die in here, and I do it. And you're thinking, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad that that guy is showing up to do his job. I'm so glad it's dairy country, right? Probably most of us. Hey, you, those of you, especially you Navy folks, how long did it take before you saw a big dead cow on the side of the road at some point, especially <laughs> out there by the dairy? Super exciting, first dead cow! I've seen children playing on those cows at dairies. (laughs) Aren't you glad someone takes the dead cow away? I am. Somebody's got to do that job. I'm so glad it's not me, but somebody has to do the job. That's the job. But now we're told that the work that Paul had been set apart for to do and Barnabas was completed. That's an interesting thing to say. Weren't there more people in Galatia that weren't believers Weren't there more towns without churches? Of course there were. Yes, absolutely. But as far as God was concerned, the specific assignment he had set apart Paul and Barnabas for back in Acts 13 2 was over. He says, It's done. You're done. That work is done. Paul could have stayed. He could have pressed on to other cities, but it wouldn't have been the Lord. It would have been Paul, and he would have had some real problems. Sometimes particular ministries come to an end, and that's okay. It doesn't mean we have failed. It doesn't mean God has failed. We'll see later, Paul will get a sequel to this trip and the, he'll, the Lord will lead him to head back to some of the places he had been before. And then we'll see that some places Paul really wanted to go to and God would say, no, you may not. You are not allowed to do that. And because Paul was submitted to the Lord, he said, okay. And because of that, spoiler alert, Instead of going that way, God says, why don't you take the gospel to Europe? And now we're here because of the work that Paul started there. A wonderful thing. But the example here, again, shows how much we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not just the leading to start something, but also the leading of when to stop something. Sometimes God stops things in our lives, changes the phase that we're in, changes the ministry that we're called to. We shouldn't quit doing ministry because we're tired of doing it. We should quit if the Lord says, you've completed that work. But the idea that all specific things that God has called us to are going to continue forever and ever, as long as we live, well, that just wasn't the case uh, in Paul's life or Barnabas' life or the other people that we see here in the book of Acts, Now, of course, even though that specific mission was over, Paul wasn't done. He didn't hang up his spurs and say, okay, I I completed my job, I did it, and so now I'm good. I got my badge, and I don't have to do that anymore. He simply started another chapter of ministry, once again in the calm and the relief of Antioch. Verse 27, after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Open door is a term you've probably heard in Christian circles, it's a good one. It was a phrase Paul would use a number of times, he seemed to really like it. Jesus seems to like it too. I wonder if he heard either Paul or Dr. Luke say it and thought, that's a good one. I mean, I don't really wonder that, but um, Jesus liked it too. He used it in one of his letters to the Revelation. There are different ways the image is used. Here it's that the door of faith was open to the Gentile, Gentile nations. God opened the door of his house wide open and said, anybody can come in here who wants to. And simultaneously, we know that God himself had left heaven to knock on the door of the hearts of each man and woman in hopes that they would open their doors and invite him in. What doors are open for us as Christians in Hanford? Using Antioch as an example, I think we might learn what doors are open by just talking to one another more about the things God has done for us. Right? They came and gave this report said, here's what the Lord was doing, here's what's been going on, and, and they were able to uh, engage with one another and encourage one another and, and participate in some level with one another. But as we talk to one another about what, is, what God is doing in our lives, I think we'll be able to see as a group what sort of doors are open for us. We might discover what doors have been left open before us as a local fellowship of believers in this time and in this place. There's a sweet wording there in verse 27. They reported everything God had done with them. Not what they had done for God, but what they did together with him as God walked with them as a friend and as a guide and as a sustainer. And we can also think of it as how they had been used by the Lord for glorious purposes that he said, hey, you two guys, I wanna use you for something special. What a sweet thing that our God takes imperfect human vessels and says, I, I'm gonna choose you for this eternal work. Do you wanna do it with me? And we are able to participate with him. That's what the Lord wants to do with us. He wants to do it with us together in intimate communion as we trust him, as we operate in grace, as we allow him to have his way in our lives. Verse 28, and they spent considerable time with the disciples. It's good to see that Paul wasn't discontent. He wasn't just guided by wanderlust let's just do something new and exciting. Let's just go somewhere. I just wanna do something and go somewhere. He was content to be on the field or back at home base. And we notice that he made himself a faithful servant in each setting. He was as ministry-minded in Antioch of Syria or Antioch of Pisidia. And that's a great, admirable maturity. There's always something else we could be focused on, some potential, some one day I'm gonna do this and miss the opportunities around us. Because right now around us, there are lives and tasks and opportunities that we can spend ourselves in. And maybe God is going to do something else that is on our hearts. But right now, we're able to be the same servant, whether we're on the field or back at home. There's always plenty of gardening to do in God's vineyard. It can be done when circumstances are stacked against us or when they're favorable It can be done whether we're among friends or strangers. It can be done whether we find ourselves in danger or in safety, cozy at home or far away on a field somewhere. Wherever God has led us, we can cultivate his work in our own lives and in those around us. We can fan the flame and be used for something special as we continue in the faith with one another in the local church, finding open doors and walking through them.